Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. The psalm we're about to look at together is almost identical. Psalm 14, almost identical to Psalm 53, except for what you read in verse 5. They were probably alternate versions of the same psalm that were written prior to them being collected in the Psalter. And back in 2008, on June the 10th, uh, Pastor Scott preached from Psalm 53. And you're welcome to go back and listen to that sermon. In fact, I encourage you to do so. It is almost identical to what you hear in Psalm 14. Some scholars think that Psalm 53 was written to believers to encourage them when God seemed silent. And Psalm 14 was written to unbelievers to encourage them to see that God is indeed never silent, making his presence and existence known through creation and through the longings of the human heart. So, if you're willing and able, let's stand together as we read Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is found in book one of the Psalms, which is Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. All of those Psalms are about God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And so, Psalm 14. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Oh, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But God's word, friends, stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Single mother, Naomi Jones, age 32, woke up one morning having forgotten nearly two decades of who she believed herself to be. Whispering to herself, it was only a dream. It was only a dream. The foreign tone in her deep voice sent her grabbing for her throat. Her speech was deep like that of an older woman. Sitting up in bed, she recognized nothing. The walls that should have been covered with teenage decorations were a dismal gray. The curtains were different. Her Marilyn Monroe duvet cover was nowhere to be seen, and her sister's bunk bed was missing. She did not recognize the house she woke up in, even though it was hers, nor did she recognize her 10-year-old son. As far as she was concerned, 
She was in 1992 when George H.W. Bush was president before the world had been blessed with cell phones or Google or YouTube. She didn't know it. Scott Bolzen was 47. He saw videos and he saw photographs of a man with a full life and a beautiful family. A couple getting married, raising kids together, going on family vacations. They were precious memories. But like Naomi Jones, Scott Bolzan could not remember any of them. In fact, Scott Bolzan had no memory of any part of his life story up until that time. It had all been erased. There are things that I know I should remember, said Bolzan. My first date my first kiss with my wife, our wedding day, the birth of my children, all of those memories that everyone else in the whole world shares. These are things I know I should remember, but I have no emotional attachment to any of those days, even when I look at these pictures. The best word I can use to describe it, Bolzen said, is being lost. Because I lost who I am. Now, Naomi Jones and Scott Bolzen both have an extreme case of severe retrograde amnesia. And many of the Psalms call us back as God's people from a severe case of what the psalmist says is the retrograde amnesia of the heart. Psalm 105.5, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments that he uttered. And Psalm 14 takes us even beneath the kind of retrograde amnesia that we have, especially fathers that you and I tend to have when it comes to making practical decisions for our families. And we say there is no God, like the psalmist says in Psalm 14. It takes, takes us deeper than that to teach us that all of humankind has experienced something far more tragic than forgetting, far more devastating than re-meeting your family for the first time, or more horrifying than losing years of your life and more troubling even than biological amnesia. The psalm teaches that humanity hasn't merely forgotten about God, but they have made a foolish choice. They have suppressed the reality of the existence of God and they have ignored the consequence of his presence. And what we are doing in Christian worship, even in this very moment, is we are remembering together the greatest truth that God not only exists, but he has come to us in the person of Jesus. And we see in the person of Jesus, this psalm opened up to have meaning for us as Christians right now in ways that profoundly treat both the spiritual amnesia that we have, but even worse, the practical atheism with which many of us operate day to day. And so in this psalm, you have three simple truths. Verses one to te uh, three teach us a universal fact. Verses four to six teach us a universal danger. And verse seven provides us with some good news of a particular salvation. Universal fact, universal danger, a particular salvation. Now, Notice universal fact in verse 1. Verse 1 says that humankind is personified by this term, a fool. 
Now, David isn't just speaking of one person. He's personifying all of humanity into this term. And in biblical Hebrew, there are three different terms for fool. And all of them refer not to an intellectual ability, but they refer to a moral choice. They refer to our moral decision-making process. You are not foolish because you're stupid. You're foolish because you are morally broken. And so in this term is, is, is immensely personal for David because the term that he use, uses is Nabal. And you'll remember in, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's a story of a man named Nabal or Nabal, right? Who was the, the husband of Abigail. And if you remember that story, the story was when David was running from Saul when all of his men were in the wilderness, they, they protected a group of sheep herders who were Nabal's sheep herders. And they, they kept them and they protected them from their enemies. And, and later, at a great time of need, David goes to Nabal and says, would you take us in because we are in danger for our life? And you may remember the story. The story is that Nabal, who is this wealthy Calebite who, you know, only hung out with famous people, and he says, huh, I don't know who this David son of Jesse is. And all of his people were like, yes, you do. We've told you about him. It says in 1 Samuel 25, verse 16, that he, sur he surrounded us like a wall day and night, and he protected your investments, your sheep. But, but Nabal wanted nothing to do with this little on-the-run fugitive named David. And so he turned his nose up at David, and he made a foolish decision. He denied David access to the safekeeping of Nabal's estate. And it was Nabal's, uh, or Nabal's wife, Abigail, who was wise and beautiful, who she was the one who then went out to David's men and said, no, 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 please, please spare our lives. He's just not listening to his people. And so David, because of the insult, gathers 4,000 men, and he goes and he gives Nabal a little sheep shearing of his own. But he spares Abigail, and Abigail becomes one of David's wives. It's kind of a funny turn of phrase, isn't it? David's wives. David could say that because he had more than one wife. Abigail became one of David's wives. And so the point here is not that Nabal was intellectually foolish. He was very wise. He was incredibly wealthy. But yet he was morally disingenuous, inconsistent, irresponsible. And he did not listen to the words of his men. And he chose in his pride to not let David in. And so David, so, you know, whether it's, whether, you know, it, whether it's literary license or it's bad parenting, you know, we shall call our son fool. You know, we, it's hard to know here exactly. But, but David uses this term, Nabal, to be a euphemism for fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so when they say there is no God, they're not talking about intellectual atheism like you find in the 20th century. We just reject God. You find a moral suppression of what is true. So if we are to define what a fool is, we might say that a fool in Scripture is a destructively self-centered person 
who cannot stand to have anyone over them and does not anticipate the consequences of their actions. A fool is a self-destructive, self-centered person who cannot stand to have anyone over them and he does not anticipate the consequences of his actions. Romans chapter 1 explains it like this when Paul is writing this great missionary letter. He says that it's not just that we disbelieve in God. The truth of the matter is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, humanity, are without excuse. So much of my life is fighting this dynamic of the heart where I make practical decisions day in and day out and I have to remember that there is a God who is present and cares about even the smallest decision of my life. And David here is refuting the practical atheism that has taken all the Gentiles by storm. They are operating as though there were no overarching principles of the world governed by a gracious and sovereign and holy God. And notice that he says that not only are they self-destructive and self-centered, but David is mourning this truth. This is a collective or a corporate lament. He is lamenting this fact. He is saying, oh God, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's lamenting it. Not only is he lamenting the fact that they morally suppress the truth in saying that there is no God, but they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Are there any who are good? No, there is none who does good. I mean, do you hear David? Like, it's intensely personal. Like, he's, he's thinking about the story of Nabal, and it, it, it's personal for him. There are none who do, do good. Where, Lord, where? Where are we going to find help that we need? The British author Aldous Huxley wrote in Ends and Means that that. I had motives for not wanting the world to have any kind of meaning, and I consequently assumed that it had none. And I was with, able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned primarily with the problem of metaphysics. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from certain systems of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. In other words, Aldous Huxley was 21 years old and he wanted to sleep with his girlfriend and if he believed in God, then it would prohibit him because of God's rules of holiness from doing what he wanted to do. And so he found a good justifying reason to get around that. Atheism which Huxley himself even admits was not an intellectual atheism. It was a heart issue. That's why it says the fool says in his heart, not in his head. He suppresses the truth. 
Sin is the disease of mankind, as the Puritans used to say, and it appears to be malignant and epidemic of disastrous proportions because it goes to the depth of me and of you. The extent of humanity's foolishness illustrates the depth of humankind's sinfulness. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord bends down in Hebrew. It's a picture of his sovereign care over the world. He bends over and he looks from heaven upon the children of man, all of mankind, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have turned aside. Altogether, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. This is the Apostle Paul's quote. Not even one. Have there no knowledge of all the evildoers? Not only do we illustrate the depth of our sin and that there be none who does good, not even one, but we see that there are consequences to our sin. And the universal danger is that our sin begins to have consequences and repercussions that we could not even imagine. Notice it says in verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? In other words, sin, when you are a fool, expresses itself by devouring other people. Living your lives without any regard to how it affects others. Here it says, they eat up my people as they eat up bread. That is, the Gentiles are oppressing the Jews in this context, and they are destroying my people, sometimes even taking them to death. And you think about it today, especially you fathers. Think about, you know, there is a, there's a sense in which when the majority belief in a culture turns from a kind of theism to believe in God into a practical atheism, the weight of balance shifts upon us, doesn't it? Because now we become the minority who believe in God's holy word, his inerrant, infallible word, who believe that God is true and just in a world where people just say whatever makes you feel good is what is right. Whatever orientation you want is what's right. And God says, no. And when that balance shifts, it becomes something that we have to bear together. And we don't have the culture to lift any of that weight up anymore. And it was on the coasts for many, many decades. And now it's squeezing middle America. And we're beginning to feel it so that less than half the people in this city go to a church, claim the name of Christ, even though we think there's churches on every corner, but they're not full. How are you doing, dads, and teaching your people and reminding them that not only is there a God out there, but he defines our life. He bends over to look. He is sovereign over all creation, and he desires to bring us in. Notice what he says in verse 5. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, what does it mean that they are in great terror? David is imagining here a situation in which something happens in the life of a Gentile and they recognize that they have no firm foundation upon which to stand and they become terrified. Something happens in their life 
where all of a sudden the resources get pulled out from under them and now they're left on their own. And it says they're injected with a kind of terror. Their, their finances, their relationships, it begins to fall short and they're left with nothing except their own moral good works before an infinitely holy God and they're terrified because they can't stand in the presence of an infinitely holy God. And for some people, if you're here and you don't yet believe the claims of Christianity, you know this terror. You know the terror of when something happens in your life and the rug gets pulled out from under you and you realize, oh, man, I feel really unstable. And the way that it manifests itself in your life is that you either get defensive or you get dismissive. You either defend yourself and you grow in your pride or you dismiss it and you just grow in your criticism or your cynicism over time. And rather than get defensive or get dismissive, this psalm is calling you to stand into the promise that David is going to give you in verse 7 to say that there is a God who loves you and cares for you and has made himself known to you. Stop suppressing the ball. Stop pushing it down. You know when your kids swim in the pool in the summer and they take the beach ball and they try to push it out of the water and it pops up? You're so tired because you're trying to suppress the truth. Just stop suppressing the truth. Recognize that it's okay that you're not in control. Because you have a sovereign God who is, and he loves you. There's a story that um, Thomas Brooks, an old Puritan, tells about a sailing vessel, and on the sailing vessel, there was an atheist. And the atheist became the talk of the, the boat because they'd never met an atheist before. Everybody believed in God in the, in the 16th century. And so they said, where's this atheist? I want to meet him. And so they met this atheist, and, and he said, indeed, I don't believe in God. And that very night, there was a storm at sea, and it was a raging storm, and they were about to sink, and the atheist said, I believe in God! I believe in God! Just get us to land! And they all prayed together, and the next morning, they woke up, and they saw the land, and they saw the city. And, and the atheist was, was disembarking from the boat, and they said, now remember, remember your belief in God. And the atheist said, oh, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. And they said, no, 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 you do. And he leaves and he runs off into the city. And one of these sailors, true story, Thomas Brooks says, finds this atheist in the town square. And he says, you were the one who believed in God on the boat. And he says, no, I didn't. And these two men get in a fight. And it, and it ends up as a duel in the town square of this village. And the man who uh, did not believe in God is mortally wounded. And he goes to the physician, and the physician, uh, the physician says, well, I, I, uh, I hear that you believe in God. He says, yes, I do believe in God. I believe in God, and I, 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 I'm just so grateful that, that he knows me. And the physician says, well, then I have good news that your wound is not mortal, and you're going to live. And the sailor goes on, and he says, well, I don't believe in God. I, 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 uh, I, I, I just, just, you know, I was on uh, amnesia and, and I don't believe in God at all. And, and on and on this, the sailor's life goes where he goes back and forth to believing in God to not believing in God based upon the terror of the reality of his own death. And that's true of each of us, isn't it? Oh, you believe in God when you're in church, but when you go and you are out in the world making practical decisions, you don't really think about the application of the gospel to your life. And what David is saying is that, oh, the road of good intentions paves the way to hell. 
It is about trusting in Christ and recognizing that when everything else is pulled out from under you, only Christ is your refuge to make you stand. And the reason you're so tired, gentlemen and ladies and children, is because you on Monday believe in God and Tuesday you don't and Wednesday you do and Thursday you don't and it's exhausting. And Psalm 14 is a call for us to recognize the practical atheism of our life, the universal fact that we are fools, that we are all nables at heart, but that there is a particular salvation for us. Look at verse 7. David here is dreaming. He is longing for the day. The temple wasn't yet built David looks at Zion as he's on the run, perhaps, and he says, Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. The people of God looked to Zion, and what they saw was blood flowing from the tabernacle because every day the Jews had to make sacrifices, bloody sacrifices, for the atonement of their sins. They made sacrifices for sins that they were aware of, and they even made sacrifices for sins that they were not aware of. Did you know that? And so the blood was flowing from this tabernacle 24-7 as a picture of what is required in order to be made right with God. And David is saying, oh, that one day out of Zion might come true salvation at last. And his son, 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 Jesus, was the final sacrifice shed on the mount upon the cross to bring out of Zion salvation for all those who would trust in him. And it is Christ, the bloody sacrificial lamb, who not only ended all of those Old Testament sacrifices, but he reminds us even in this moment, despite our practical temptations to practical atheism, he says to all the Nabals in the room, come, listen, hear the voice of the good news and run back to the cross because that is where salvation is found. You will have your fortunes restored. Your identity in Christ is far more valuable than any coins in your pocket. You want to rejoice? You take joy in the God of your salvation who died as the final sacrifice for you. You want to be glad? You look to Christ and his finished work on the cross. Scott Bolzen slipped in the men's restroom of his office building and he hit his head on the ground and he could not remember anything before that event for 16 months. And slowly, with the help of friends, his memory began to come back to him. Naomi Jones read thousands of pages of her personal journals in order to bring those memories back. And after years of counseling and help with friends and retelling the story of her life through those journals, she too got her story back and wrote a book about it. And friends, in Christian worship, we are pulling out the journals of God's people the Psalms, we are opening them up and we are saying, this story is the story of your life. You are Nabal's. You are the fool 
who says in your heart there is no God. And today, if you are an unbeliever, haven't yet come to know Christ personally, today is the day of salvation for you. Recognize that you suppress the truth. It's not that you deny it because of intellectual arguments. It's that you suppress it. You have faith already in place. Even if you believe the world were created, nobody goes to the Metropolitan Museum and looks at a Picasso painting and goes, huh, the inkwell exploded to produce this. I mean, God has created the world in beauty and symmetry and harmony so that you would say, oh my gosh, he's made his way known to you through general revelation. Believe it. And he comes to us in Psalm 14 and he says, now hear the special revelation that Jesus Christ was the one that came to set the world to right. And you can know him once and for all. Oh, there is a God. And he is far more beautiful than you could ever hope or imagine. Let Jacob rejoice. And in Christ, let Israel be glad on this Father's Day. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, would you help us in the midst of our spiritual retrograde amnesia to recognize your covenant faithfulness in our life, how you have chosen us since before the foundation of the world to be your sons and your daughters. Oh, Lord, let us rejoice and be glad in that. As we come to your table, Lord, let those who don't yet believe, even children who have not come to the table, Lord, open their hearts to believe. For the cynic in the room who finds himself here visiting, I pray that you would open his heart to believe, even for the first time. That you would help us to recognize that it is, it is our suppression, not our intellectual arguments that make us run from you. Help us to stop pushing that beach ball under the water. Help us to splash and play and enjoy your presence because you have called us to be your sons and your daughters. And on this Father's Day, Lord, I do pray that you would bless our fathers, that children and children's children will see their father and their grandfather and say, I know there is a God because I have seen the radical transformation of my father, of my grandfather. I've seen a humility in him that is otherworldly. It must mean that he was met with divine grace the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be, Father, we pray.